Children. How many of you children, and you can raise your hands if you've heard this, uh, how many of you children have heard of a, uh, a book, uh, a story entitled The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? Raise your hands if you heard that. Okay. You adults can do it too if you want. Um, yes, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe was a very, is a very well-known children's story, although it's really good for adults too, but it was written by a man who uh, uh, lived a number of years back. His name is C.S. Lewis. And uh, for those of you that have read or heard the story read to you, you'll recall that in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, there is a character named Aslan. Aslan was a huge lion. And he's, he was the king of this kind of, um, this otherworldly place called Narnia. And he was the king of Narnia, Aslan was. And Aslan, uh, Mr. Lewis, who wrote the story, he represented Aslan as if he were, as a type of Christ. You've heard me talk about types before. Well, Aslan was a Christ-like figure in this, in this world that had talking animals in it and other, uh, mis- strange things as well. But Aslan represented Jesus in the story. And fairly early on in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, this little girl named Susan, uh, who had just recently arrived in the uh, land of Narnia, she learns about Aslan for the first time. And Aslan is being described to Susan by her new friend that she had just recently met, a talking beaver named, appropriately enough, Mr. Beaver. And at a certain point in this conversation, when Mr. Beaver is talking to Susan, Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion. The lion. The great lion. And after Susan hears Mr. Beaver say this, she responds by saying immediately afterwards, Oh, I'd thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I feel I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Mr. Beaver replies, safe? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Notice Aslan is described there as good but not safe. And remember, Mr. Lewis, who wrote that story, is representing Christ through Aslan the lion. And the point he is making is that Jesus is good, but not safe. This passage, children, is about the fact that God, and Jesus is God the Son, uh, and he was the God-man, and he is the God-man in glory right now, that our God, all three persons in one God, is infinitely good, but he's not safe. In fact, I entitled this sermon, The God of War, because he is a warrior God to those who are his enemies. And this passage makes that point eloquently. So, Brace yourself. Um, there's some hard truth here, but it's it's good to 
uh, we need to we need to not just selectively choose the passages that are comfortable in Scripture and read them, but we need to look at all the passages and realize God put this here for a reason. So we need to understand it and we need to embrace it and um, rejoice in the news of it. So. A little background here, just to remind you. Um, the southern kingdom of Judah, the, the united kingdom of Israel under uh, David and Solomon is broken into two. The ten northern tribes uh, uh, live in a place called the kingdom of uh, Israel. They kept the name Israel. And the southern two tribes are the kingdom of Judah. And the descendants of David ruled over the kingdom of Judah. That was They were actually the true kings of all 12 tribes, even though the 10 northern tribes didn't recognize the, the king of the southern kingdom. But Jehoshaphat was one of the descendants of King David, and therefore a legitimate, uh, a, a legitimate king that God considered his anointed uh, king. And uh, he ruled through the kings of Judah. So the southern kingdom of Judah is under, um, under threat by enemies from their east, uh, the peoples of Ammon, Moab, and Mount Seir, who are called Munites here at one point in this text, uh, are coming after Israel. They want to conquer Israel and, and uh, presumably make it their own. And at last report, um, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Munites had amassed their combined forces uh, less than 25 miles away from the capital city of Judah, which is where Jehoshaphat lived, that's Jerusalem. So they're less than 25 miles, this massive army of these three different countries, essentially, um, have come together and they're, they're gathering their forces to attack Judah, and particularly to attack the capital. And Jehoshaphat, the king, um, responds to this very frightening news of this report uh, that their enemies are at their doorstep. He responds by proclaiming a national fast throughout Judah, um, and calling on as many of his subjects as can come in a very, very short period of time to join him in Jerusalem uh, to collectively, as a people, call upon the Lord for help in fighting their approach, this approaching threat of their enemies. And I read that uh, in verses 3 and 4. We won't read it again. So he calls this national fast, And once gathered, once the people gather, Jehoshaphat, the king, leads this assembly in prayer to the Lord. And that prayer is found in verses 5 through 12. uh, Beseeching the Lord to come to Israel's, uh, Judah rather, Judah's aid. Well, almost as soon as Jehoshaphat is finished with his prayer and the nation praying along with him, the people all that were gathered there that day, as soon as he finishes praying, they finish praying, Almost as soon as that happens, a prophet of God named Jehaziel steps forward out of the crowd and announces the Lord's response to Jehoshaphat and indeed the nation's prayer for help. And that's found in verses 14 through 17. I'll I'll start in verse 15 rather than reading those names again in verse 14. Um, 15, and he said, Jehaziel said, listen, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat. Thus says the Lord to you, Do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up by the ascent of Ziz, and you will find them at the end of the valley in front of the wilderness of Jeruel. 
You need not fight this in this battle. Station yourselves, stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow go out to face them, for the Lord is with you. Three things, major things that we need to uh, grasp, I think, uh, as we look at this passage and in this account. First is this, the Lord miraculously, and this is summarizing what we read here, the Lord miraculously or supernaturally fights on behalf of his covenant people. Secondly, the Lord puts the, um, the Lord gives much cause for joy to his covenant people. And then finally, the Lord puts the fear of himself in the enemies of his covenant people. So first, the Lord miraculously fights on behalf of his covenant people. This is found in verses 20 through 23. And the Lord, before I describe the, the battle, which is really summarized in uh, two verses there, but before we look at that in a little bit, uh, a little bit more, Notice that this battle that is won by the Lord on behalf of uh, Judah, the people of Judah, is in response to prayer. In response to their prayer, um, led by their king, they're praying along with the, the king, their prayer for God's help, for God's aid. Notice also that the Lord doesn't actually uh, start fighting, if we can put it that way, against uh, Judah's enemies, also until after Jehoshaphat exhorts, in particular, his army, his soldiers, who were going to go out to meet the enemy, after it only happens after he exhorts um, the army of his to put their trust in the Lord as they go out to meet the enemy face to face. Let's read verse 20 again. And they arose early in the morning and went out the wilderness of Tekoa, and when they went out, so this is as they're leaving Jerusalem, they're presumably on the outskirts of Jerusalem, so he's repeating him, saying, this is the going out in the morning, and, and when they went out, Jehoshaphat stood and said, listen to me, O Judah, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, put your trust in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Put your trust in his prophets and succeed. Specifically, what the king here is saying to his troops is he's saying, gentlemen, you need to believe and act upon what God has already said to us through the prophet, particularly the prophet that had spoken the night before, Jehaziel, but also other prophets that have spoken in times past about how God would come to our aid against our enemies when we were under attack. You need to put your trust in those messages, and particularly the one you heard last night, he says through um, Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah. What are they to to put their trust in and then they're to act upon what they have been told, both things. So first of all, they're to believe something. They're to trust something. They are to trust, uh, verse 17, I won't read it, but it's in there. First of all, that God, the Lord God, the God of their forefathers, is with them. He is with them in in a beneficial way. That's what with them means. He is on their side, if you will. Your God is on your side, is what he's saying. To And you need to believe that. You can't see him, but he's there. 
By the way, this is an important point that we need to remind ourselves. Just because we are, we are naturally um, taking information and, and, uh, through our senses. We're uh, sensor, uh, sensory-oriented uh, creatures. But we, nowadays, can't sense God. Now, God occasionally did speak in the Old Testament age, um, audibly. Uh, and, and there were theophanies in the Old Testament age and the New Testament uh, as well at times. But not at this stage in church history. But just because we can't see him doesn't mean he's not right there. We need to keep that in mind when we are under attack ourselves. Another thing they needed to believe, not only was God was with them, but he was going to do what he said in verse 15 he would do. And he said, this battle doesn't belong to you. This is God's fight. This is God's fight. And you need to believe that as you march out to meet this enemy that we are going to see here shortly. And then, as a result of believing these two things, that God is with you and that this is his fight, he essentially says, you need to act on that belief, gentlemen. By doing a couple of things. First of all, by not being afraid of this massive uh, uh, military army arrayed against you. You must not be afraid of these hostile forces, he says. says it twice in verse 15 and verse 17. And then he says, and you need to boldly go out, march out in front of that massive invading army that's coming toward us or about to head uh, for our capital. And then you need to stop and you need to stand there and watch or see what's already happened, actually, as, as it turns out. That's acting on the belief that I just mentioned that they were told in Jehaziel's message you need to do these things. You need to believe this, and then you need to act this way as a result of that belief. And they did. As a nation, under Jehoshaphat's, under Jehoshaphat's leadership, they did exactly as they were told. They obeyed, and they obeyed the Lord's directive, and they marched out of Jerusalem, marched to the place where they were supposed to march, and did what they were told to do. Notice there's a principle here, folks. And that principle is that sincere trust, which is what the nation, particularly the troops gathered on this day, were exhibiting, sincere trust in the Lord and in His Word results in obedience. Trust produces obedience. If there's no obedience, there is no real trust, regardless of what somebody might say. We only act upon what we sincerely believe. If we say we believe something, but don't act in a manner that is consistent, imperfectly, but generally consistent, with our professed belief, we don't really believe what we say we believe. At least not at that moment we don't. When we sin, every sin that we commit is first and foremost unbelief. We pretend like the Bible's not true when we sin. We pretend like God didn't say, do not be deceived, God is not mocked, whatever a man sows, that will he also reap. 
We pretend like that's not true. Because we proceed to get angry, to shade the truth, uh, to uh, have an idolatrous desire for possessions, to make our job our priority rather than our uh, biblical uh, priorities that we're supposed to have. We don't really believe, really, if we don't act on what we say we believe. These folks, imperfectly, but I imagine there were some that were trying to, struggling to not be afraid as they saw this massive army uh, out in front of them, uh, knew of this massive army that they were going to confront. But as a, as a nation, this is one of the good spots in Israel's history when, by and large, the nation was, relatively speaking, obedient to the Lord, and their king certainly was. Although he had his moments, too, as we've seen. But they obeyed because they were trusting God. Well, how does the Lord fight on their behalf? Well, we know verse 23 makes the point, uh, summarizes it. He basically miraculously causes Judah's enemies, the Ammonites, the Moabites, and the Munites, uh, to turn on one another and then to utterly destroy each other until not one of them is left. Imagine watching that. Now, the king and his forces didn't actually watch that. It had already happened. Um, the chronicler makes it clear here, um, if, if you read, put it all together, uh, what's said here, that this divinely orchestrated fratricide occurred occurs before Jehoshaphat's army reaches that site where they can actually see the enemy. When they finally reach it, all they see is dead bodies laying across that, whatever it was, plain or hill or uh, whatever it was, uh, that spot where they were. Judah's enemies, you see, had begun killing each other when the Levitical singers who were out in front of the army began to sing and praise God. And the Levitical singers began to do that as Jehoshaphat's forces were leaving Jerusalem and heading out toward the spot where the enemies were gathered. So when they began singing, that was kind of the angelic army's cue to slaughter everybody, you know, or make them slaughter each other. I'm assuming there were some angels that showed up for that battle. So the Ammonites and the Moabites and the Mount Seir uh, inhabitants annihilated each other before Judah's, uh, Judah's army ever laid eyes on them. They were all dead when they arrived. And the chronicler, and more importantly, the Holy Spirit who inspired him, wants us to understand something, I think, in this order. That you know, all they had to do was stand and see. That's all they had to do. Go out there, march out, stand and see. And the Lord wants us to understand that the historical destruction, and this is genuine history, of this vast army of pagans, which is what they were, was an utterly supernatural act. It was a gargantuan miracle. It was God, we are told in verse 22, who set ambushes uh, that brought about this outcome. It was the Lord who did this. 
Indeed, it was divine intervention on the order of magnitude similar to that of the parting of the Red Sea, I would suggest. Big stuff. Big God stuff. And folks, the God who was responsible for what happened that day in the wilderness of Jeruel is the God to whom you and I are accountable. A God who loves and comes to the aid of those who trust him. But a God who wars against and will eventually destroy forevermore those who don't. Are you trusting solely in God, this God, the triune God of the Bible, to deliver you from the eternal punishment that you deserve on account of your sins. We all deserve God's wrath forevermore. But God is not only a God of judicial, of justice, He is a God of grace. He's just as much a God of grace as He is a God of justice. And His grace flows to sinners, which brings about their forgiveness through His provision for man's sin, and that is Jesus Christ. He is the only provision for man's sin. The Jesus of the Bible, who is 100% God and is 100% man, and is now enthroned in heaven in the place of highest honor. He is the only Savior of sinners. Are you trusting solely in him as your Savior and your Lord for your right standing before God? You must, or you will go to hell. I trust none of you want that. Secondly, uh, the Lord not only miraculously fights on behalf of his covenant people, but he gives much cause for joy to his covenant people in this text, in verses 24 through 28. First of all, he causes the inhabitants of Judah to rejoice over his miraculous defeat of their foes. Indeed, their destruction. The destruction of their foes. In verse 27, he says, And every man of Judah and Jerusalem, this is after, of course, they've come back, every man of Judah and Jerusalem returned with Jehoshaphat at their head, returning to Jerusalem with joy. For the Lord has made them to rejoice over their enemies. Let that sink in for a moment. Over their enemies. Now, you might be wondering how how Judah's rejoicing over the annihilation of their enemies, the slaughter of their enemies, how that squares with Jesus' command to us to love our enemies. How does that square? Well, the answer to this seeming, not real, but this seeming contradiction in Scripture, the answer is to be found in the Bible's teaching that God rejoices always over the dispensing of justice whenever and wherever that meeting out of justice is found. Because all justice is ultimately God's justice. Just to make this point, and I'll just use this one text to make this point, that God rejoices over the uh, meeting out of justice. Jeremiah chapter 51, verses 
47 and 48, we read here, let some of you turn there if, you, if you're turning to it, Jeremiah 51, 47 and 48. And the Lord is speaking here, and he says, Therefore, behold, days are coming when I shall punish the idols of Babylon. This is after the, uh, the people of Judah have been taken into captivity and are in Babylon. Let me start again. Therefore, behold, days are coming when I shall punish the idols of Babylon, and her whole land will be put to shame, and all her slain will fall in her midst. And then it says in verse 48, Then heaven and earth and all that is in them will shout for joy over Babylon. For the destroyers will come to her from the north, declares the Lord. They were the Medes, by the way. But notice, joy over the destruction of people. Babylonian people. Um, God is, was pleased with that outcome when it occurred. This is, it was future from the standpoint when this was written, but he was pleased with that outcome. He... Uh, Rejoiced in the dispensation, or the dispensing rather of justice. These pagan soldiers, back to our text that we're looking at here today, these pagan soldiers were all of them, to a man, reprobate despisers of the true God, the God of Israel. And as reprobate despisers of God Himself, they were absolutely deserving. Hear that word deserving of the outpouring of God's judgment upon them. And God gave them that just punishment, began to give it to them, I should say, on that day that we read of here. And it pleased him to do so. To pour out justice on those who deserved that justice. And since the Lord is pleased when justice is meted out to the ungodly, It is not at all inappropriate for believers to be pleased when this happens. Indeed, it's actually the appropriate response when justice is meted out. After all, all we are doing when we do this is imitating God. How can that be wrong? Right? Proverbs 21.15 tells us, The execution of justice is joy for the righteous. but it's terror for the workers of iniquity. When Christ tells us in the New Testament to love our enemies, we are to love our enemies. But he is referring to our personal enemies, to specific individuals who have animus towards us personally. Some of you have enemies. I have a few. It is these enemies whom Jesus commands us to love. And this requirement to love our enemies, this requirement with respect to our personal enemies, is not inconsistent with, nor does it rule out or prevent, our rejoicing over the meeting out of justice, even when it is meted out to people whom we ourselves are required to love. 
It might sound like you can't love somebody and rejoice in their destruction. I acknowledge that's a difficult thing to do, but it's not impossible. Somehow it's not impossible. They rejoiced, Israel, Judah did rather, over God's destruction of the ungodly uh, nations to their east. They also rejoiced over the enormous quantity of plunder that God arranged for them to take from their enemies. In verses 25 and 26 we read that. This is an example of what is sometimes referred to as plundering of the Egyptians. In this case it wasn't Egyptians. It was Ammonites, Moabites, and Munites. But this plundering of the Egyptian, what that is, is when God arranges providentially for believers to be materially blessed by the providential transfer of money or property from the ungodly to them, to the believer. This happened, by the way, just think back on your Old Testament, this happened to Jacob following Laban's repeated duplicitous dealings with him over years and years and years. Lord just deprived Laban of uh, of his flocks and gave them um, to Jacob. Uh, even though Laban was trying to finagle Jacob out of it, Lord wouldn't allow it. Did the opposite, and of course, uh, this happened as the Israelites were departing from Egypt. Thus, the plundering of the Egyptians uh, phrase. I'll, in fact, I'll read it. This is from Exodus chapter. 12, verses 34 and 35. This is just as they're about to leave Egypt. And it says, Now the sons of Israel had done according to the word of Moses, for they had requested from the Egyptians articles of silver and articles of gold and clothing. And the Lord had given the people favor in the sight of the Egyptians so that they let them have their request. Thus they plundered the Egyptians. This is a general truth, generally true, and like the Proverbs are generally true. This is a general truth that is taught in Scripture. If you look uh, just two places quickly, uh, Proverbs verse chapter 13, verse uh, 22 reads, <clears throat> no, that's not it. Oh, yes it is, no it is. 13.22, a good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. Here's the, here's the part. And the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. Proverbially, a, a proverb, uh, generally speaking, is true. There are exceptions, of course, but uh, generally speaking, the, um, the wealth of the sinner is stored up for the righteous. And then if you go over to Ecclesiastes, uh, Chapter 2, verse 26, we read something similar. We read there, For to a person who is good in his sight, in God's sight, he, God, has given wisdom and knowledge and joy, while to the sinner he has given the task of gathering and collecting, so that he, the sinner, may give to the one who is good in God's sight. The Lord sometimes does this for his people. Actually, fairly regularly does this for his people. 
And in the days of Jehoshaphat, the people rejoiced in God's giving them uh, this wealth of the nations, as it were. And we, too, have permission, I'm convinced, through this text and the others that I've read, that we have permission from God to rejoice when he does this for us. Not in such a way that we are rejoicing over the misfortune of others, but rejoicing, rather, in God's kindness to us, shown by arranging for us to prosper, um, even at times at the... um, in a way that is detrimental to uh, the unbeliever. So, the Lord gives much cause for joy to his covenant people. Thirdly, this text teaches us in verses 29 and 30 that the Lord puts the fear of himself in the enemies of his covenant people here in this text. That is certainly the case. How does he do this? Well, I don't think that requires much explanation. He does this by this over-the-top display of his own supreme power for the benefit of his people and to the extreme detriment of their adversaries. Again, verse 23, For the sons of Ammon and Moab rose up against the inhabitants of Mount Seir, destroying them completely. And when they had finished with the inhabitants of Seir, they helped to destroy one another. Hundred, pr- tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of Judah's enemies lay slain as they look on without the lifting of a single Judean sword. You see, the fact that the army of, Israel, of Judah didn't participate even slightly in bringing about this outcome it makes it impossible for any of the surrounding nations of that day to learn about this mind-boggling slaughter and then to attribute it to anything other than the supreme intervention of Israel's God and a a supreme display of anger and power on the part of uh, Judah's, rather, God. And the contemplation of this undeniable fact that Judah's God did this, as word spread probably like wildfire around the ancient Near East after this, the contemplation of that made an unmistakable impression on the nations far and wide. And we read that in verse 29. And the dread of God, of Judah's God, was on all the kingdoms of the lands when they heard that the Lord had fought against the enemies of Israel. And what was, so, everybody was sobered in the neighborhood, if I can put it that way. Don't mess with the Israelites, or the Judahites. And what was the result of this fear being placed in the nations of the ancient Near East, uh, far and wide? Well, the result was of the instilling of this dread was that Judah enjoyed a period of peace and rest, which we read of in verse 30. So, uh, connecting the thought of the dread of the Lord uh, being instilled in other nations, so the kingdom of Jehoshaphat was at peace, for his God gave him rest on all sides. 
Yahweh's reputation for coming to the aid of his covenant people in a way that was utterly devastating for their enemies was clearly confirmed on this day in history. And the result was that Judah's potential enemies left him alone. Didn't attack anymore, or even think about it, presumably for some years at least. And the peace that uh, the chronicler speaks of uh, and the rest that he speaks of, not only, it, not only does it refer to military security from enemies uh, that Judah enjoyed, but also it does imply, by the way, economic prosperity as well came to the uh, Old Testament church, which was Judah. It was a time of great blessing. As they, as a nation, trusted God, and as their leader led them in that trust uh, by his own behavior much of the time, with a few notable exceptions. But they trusted the Lord, and they acted on that belief, and the Lord um, did mighty things among them and blessed them. And that Old Testament church, her enjoyment of this national peace and rest during Jehoshaphat's reign, this, nas- this, um, this national peace and rest of Judah typified, folks, the spiritual peace and rest that all believers have begun to partake of in this life because we are at peace with God on account of what Christ has done for us and our union with him. But it's also a typifies the spiritual rest and peace that we will partake of in far greater measure in the life to come. When we read of Old Testament Israel's experiences, they often apply to the individual believer in this way. They're types. This is a this is a type of spiritual rest that can only be had by those who look to Christ alone for that peace with God, which also produces, by the way, peace with uh, others around us. Um, But it can only be had in Christ, through Jesus Christ. If you don't have this peace in your heart, flee in faith to Jesus Christ. The warrior king, who is also infinitely gracious to those who will flee to him in faith. Let's pray.